0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. So let's uh, look this morning in First Peter uh, chapter four. Uh, if you catch the title there, does suffering have to be traumatic? Um, we'll kind of unpack that a little bit here, but let's read the passage first. First uh, Peter 4, uh, 16 through 19. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Um, this is a. You know, sometimes sermons are full of landmines. If you don't tread carefully, you just blow yourself up. This is one of those, I want to be sure I tread carefully and not uh, say things that people misunderstand or take the wrong way. Um, but uh, uh, so the first disclaimer is uh, tr- trauma is real, you know, and, and life sometimes deals with some very painful blows and uh, Many of you may be here this morning with things in your past that are traumatic, painful. Uh, you may have already suffered abuse and, and persecution and hard things. And uh, and getting through that is not always easy, right? But uh, I don't want to talk so much this morning about past trauma or past abuse or past hurt. Uh, that would be a very different sermon. Um, but this morning I want to look more at how we look at at, at what Peter talks about here, about uh, knowing that as Christians, we 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 need to look forward to a future that will involve suffering. <laughs> like we, we will encounter suffering, uh, sometimes for our faith in Christ, but sometimes as we will see, just for living. I mean, living sometimes is hard, and and pain and suffering can be very much part of that, right? Um, and we live in a in a time, in an age, in a world. Uh, where it seems like everyone has become a, a victim. In fact, it's, been, it's, it's become kind of a, a hallmark uh, that we, we, we need to be a victim. Somehow we get value and identity, especially in the West. If you're more uh, live, coming from an Asian context, this may not be true. But in the West, for sure, uh, part, of, part of what makes you a person is how much you've suffered and how much you've become a victim. Right um, Now, there is real suffering in the world. As I said, there is pain and real abuse. But I don't think in the history of the world, I don't think people have kind of embraced suffering and, uh, 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 as kind of like a, a rite of passage. <laughs> right. One writer, not a Christian writer, but wrote an article in the New Yorker uh, um, called The Case Against the Trauma Plot. And uh, this author, Parul Segal, writes... In a world infatuated with victimhood, has trauma emerged as a passport to status, a red badge of courage? Seems kind of harsh and brutal and and maybe unkind, but uh, she writes this whole article, and actually it's a brilliant, well-written article about this whole idea of, of how we as a culture, especially in the West, have begun to shape our identity based on our traumatic past and history. Right? And in such a climax, um, climate, almost any life event can be experienced as traumatic. Right? Now here's, a, here's an example of what I'm kind of talking about. Uh, several years ago, Denise and I were at, a, at an eye clinic, and she's trying to get... One of us was getting our eyes checked. We are getting glasses. I forget now why we were there. But we were waiting in the lobby <coughs> for the uh, uh, pay our bill or whatever, and... Uh, and there was this lady who, who was also there. So it was just the three of us and this one lady behind the counter doing customer service. And this lady behind the counter was explaining to this younger, I don't know, 30-ish, 30-ish age lady um, that uh, her insurance was going to pay for all of her glasses, which I know mine, mine cost like a lot, five or $600. And she said, you know, the insurance is going to pay for everything, but, but the, your insurance policy requires you to pay $10. Now, that's pretty cheap. In the United States, like, that's like a hamburger, like Starbucks, you know, $10. You just need to pay $10. Your insurance is going to pay all the rest. Well, this lady just was not having this. She was like, this is wrong. I'm being violated here, right? This is just not right. I shouldn't have to pay $10. And the lady behind the counter was being very kind and very patient, unbelievably so. I would have been like, lady, you're an idiot, right? But she was being very kind, and she was saying, no, sorry, I know it's hard, but, um, hey, Tim, we're getting some ringing or feedback up here somewhere. Uh, uh, no, this is what you have to do, you know. It's, 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 it's what your insurance requires, right? Well, finally, this lady, uh, the, the, the customer, said said to her, she said, I don't feel safe. You're threatening me. And Denise and I were like, Whoa, what where is this coming from? And you know, I've lived in Thailand too long, I've never heard of this before. But I've come to I've come to be aware that this is like a thing now. Like you don't like something, you just feel threatened. I'm I'm a victim. I'm a victim. You're you're threatening me. You're abusing me right? And and uh this lady behind the counter was still super patient, right? Well, it's kind of the culture, that's what I'm talking about, this culture of victimhood, of victimization, of like I get my identity out of being traumatized by anything and everything. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, some of you may be familiar with him, he writes about this and he asks, why is everyone in such a hurry to be hurt? <laughs> He says, many people suffer at the hands of others. The world can be unfair, at times mercilessly so. Millions of people in the world are genuine victims right now. He says, all of us at some point, whether, well, uh, will be, right? We will be, we will suffer, right? That's what the Bible says, whether for, um, for small matters or large, for a long duration or short. But he asks, um, He says, but we aren't all victims, not all the time anyway, and not for everything. We're not victims all the time for every little thing. Offendedness is just about the last shared social currency in our country. And he's speaking of America. A bunch of crybabies there, apparently. I don't know. Uh, He says, I'm sorry, but it's really annoying. Right? So that's... uh, Now, again, I want to be sensitive, but, like, trauma is real. And people have heard experience huge abuse and suffering. I don't want to minimize that. I don't want to make light of that. Um, but uh, is, this, is it really our calling, right? Is it really something we need to, like, embrace as our identity that I'm not a real person unless I can claim some sort of abuse or victimization? Well, he argues that in many cases people choose to be offended and enjoy taking the role of a victim because, for starters, he says, being hurt is easier than being right. Okay? Being hurt is easier than being right. In other words, to prove you're offended, you just have to rustle up moral indignation and tell the world about it. Right? So in a debate, or if you're disagreeing with somebody over paying $10 that your insurance requires, it's easier to just be uh, offended right, than to be right. Or he says also we demand apologies, sometimes no doubt because there's been a genuine sin committed. But often we demand apologies just because we can. It's a way to shame those with whom we disagree. And you see that a lot in, in uh, Western culture right now. So, so the thing is, like I said, it's not that we want to uh, discount or say that real abuse, real trauma is not a problem and it's not real. But, but the question becomes, when you look, read passages like 1 Peter, where he keeps talking about suffering all the time, like, how do we take that? Right? How, do we, how do we interpret and, and see what Peter is saying when he says, you know, you're going uh, you to suffer, and you need to buck up and deal with it. Right? You need to look forward to it. You need to prepare for it. Is right? he saying that, look, as Christians, we need to embrace this identity of being victims? And Christians are just victims, and we just need to feel sorry for ourselves. Is that what he's saying? I don't think so. I don't think that's Peter's approach at all. Um, He is not saying uh, that, right? He is saying you will suffer, but he's actually telling us how to suffer very differently in a way that is facing suffering willingly, that's moving towards suffering, not running away from it, not to be some kind of martyr or not to be some kind of victim but uh, as part of God's purpose and plan, uh, facing it with courage, right? And I don't think the Bible or Peter or God has this idea that uh, being a Christian means suffering and, and and living as a whole Christian community of people with severe PTSD who are just stuck in our trauma, right? I think he would say, no, there is a way to suffer uh, that you can actually overcome trauma. You can grow through trauma and uh, do it uh, with courage uh, and and, and in a way that grows us spiritually. So how do we do that? How does Peter advise us to to charge into difficult situations where we know we may suffer uh, with boldness and with courage? Well, uh, he basically uh, lists four, I would call, attitudes of suffering that that Enable us to do it well in a way that doesn't wreck us emotionally. Um, And he starts in verse 17 with some kind of hard words. He says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? He says, basically, um, God is going to judge. Now, judgment, oftentimes when we read these words, especially from kind of a New Testament vantage point or viewpoint, we think of final judgment in eternity, right? And certainly there will be a great day of judgment at the end when God resurrects the living and the dead. He calls them to the great judgment seat and he will judge everyone. But that is probably not the judgment that he's talking about here, right? I think the judgment he's speaking of is a very present judgment, because it's a, it's a present judgment that will result in suffering now. Right? That's what he's talking about, this um, suffering that the church will face. And he says that this judgment is going to begin with the household of God. And this, this picture of judgment really comes more from an Old Testament point of view. And in the Old Testament, a judgment, almost always, not always, but most of the time, judgment meant that God was going to uh, destroy some nation. Right? Usually, the enemies of Israel, sometimes Israel, right? Depending on who he was judging at the moment. And it meant, it meant destruction. It meant they were going to be wiped out by usually another nation, which would then eventually be wiped out by yet another nation, right? That's kind of how it worked. Judgment meant present, imminent uh, ruin that was coming to a country or a people or a nation. And that's what judgment. So you see, Isaiah prophesized judgment on Babylon. He prophesied judgment on the Assyrians, on Edom, on the Philistines. And the list goes on and on. There's a lot. right? It's a long list, right? Um, and that meant in, in the near future, they're going to be destroyed, right? conquered. So, so Peter says here, look, it's time for judgment. It's time. And, and he's, he's saying that uh, you're likely going to see God pouring out Judgment on Earth now, and it's important to realize that Peter um, uh, Peter lived uh, very likely and, and witnessed the destruction of, of Jerusalem and the Temple. That we don't know exactly when he wrote this, if it was before the destruction or after. Uh, but certainly, the, the writing was on the wall. You know, as as Rome began sending troops and Mark. Uh, building up this huge army, it became clear that things were not going to end well for Jerusalem. And uh, the Jewish people foolishly held on to this false hope that God would deliver them, and of course he didn't. Uh, and for people like Peter, people living in that time, the, you, you got to realize the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple was an end times event. It was apocalyptic. right? It was what Daniel talked about in the Old Testament as marking, signaling the, the time of the end. And, of course, we sometimes have very different views of the end times. And we think, well, we're not living in the end times. Uh, The end times is future. Well, actually, we probably are living in the end times, right? We probably are, right? And so Peter saw this judgment uh, coming on Israel, certainly on Jerusalem, and and, uh, and eventually on Rome as something that the earth would endure as part of God's judgment. And he says that the church is not going to be exempt, right? Uh, Christians are not bulletproof. And so when God sends his judgment on places like Jerusalem or on Rome, uh, Christians are also going to suffer. And in fact, he says that they are going to be the first. Right? It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Uh, we will suffer uh, along with everyone else during these times of, of stress and difficulty. Right? Now, of course, life went on and... Um, uh, the church certainly saw intense persecution for about 300 years. And then Constantine got baptized and things changed. Things got better in, in part. right? But up to this day, we see places where Christians are still persecuted for their faith. Right? Where they still suffer terribly uh, imprisonment and death and persecution because they are Christians, right? Um, uh, and, and, and beyond that, though, beyond that, uh, Peter's picture here is that suffering in the world, whether it's religious persecution or just just life, right, that it is a piece of God's judgment. Right? So um, we, we live in a fairly safe place in Thailand, praise God. We're not persecuted for our faith directly, sometimes indirectly, but not directly directly. Uh, most people are not going to jail or having their houses burned down. Praise God for that. But that doesn't mean that you're not going to suffer. Right? Um, I'm getting older, and I, I'm discovering painfully that age is suffering. Right? Age is suffering. Right. So unless you plan on not getting older, you're going to suffer. Right? Physical problems. There will be conflict. There will be stressful relationships. There can be economic collapse or ruin, right? Uh, there's a lot of things that can bring suffering into our life. And, and Peter's point here is that basically everyone suffers, right? There's no, there's no like, get-out-of-jail-free card on this one. There's no wild card that says, oh, I'm a Christian, I, don't, I won't suffer, right? Or I'm from this country, I won't suffer. I'm wealthy, I won't suffer, right? No, suffering is part of life. So the question is not, uh, am I going to suffer? We will, right? Uh, the more important question is, is this. How will your suffering end? That's the important question Peter asks. What will be the end? What will be the final outcome and result of your suffering? Uh, it's interesting that... Um, studies of people who experience trauma and uh, get stuck in, in, in PTSD or in stuck in trauma have the sense that there's no end to it. Like it just goes on and on. There will be no conclusion, no finish, right? You're just stuck there and you feel hopeless. But here's the good news. If you're a child of God, if you belong to Christ and have been saved by his blood, there is a definite end to suffering. Right? And that's what he says here in, in First Peter Four. He says, uh, for the time of judgment is, is to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome, what will be the end or the result for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Uh, and he quotes a psalm. He says, if the righteous is, is, is saved, hard, is, is barely saved, what will become the uh, outcome of the ungodly and the sinner? Right?
1: The outcome for us, he says,
0: is salvation. Salvation. He says, you will be saved. It may feel like you're barely saved. But I think what Peter has in mind here is your suffering on earth may feel like you're not being saved. In fact, for many of the Christians that he wrote to, they died. Like they actually physically died for their faith. And it may seem like, well, God didn't rescue them. But Peter says, no, uh, Their suffering ended in death, and God saved their soul. They have eternal life with Christ, and God delivered them. He took care of them. He rescued them. There was an end, and God brought about his salvation. Um, But that is not true for the ungodly. He says, when will the suffering of the ungodly end? Well, his answer is, it doesn't. Not in this life, not in the next. Right? When their suffering begins, when judgment falls on them, uh, it will not end. Right? Uh, so, so step one in facing suffering well is to be sure of our salvation in Christ. And know that no matter how difficult things may be right now, we have the hope, and Peter talks about this earlier in chapter 1, right? the hope of eternal life in Christ. The hope of his unfading salvation. Right? And it's important to hope, hold on to that in suffering. Um, it takes endurance. It may seem impossible, but we need to focus that there will be an end. Right? It does not last forever. God will save us. So uh, the first step for us is to be sure of our salvation in Christ. To know that we have life in Christ. Acts 4.12 says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is in Christ alone. In Romans 10.9, Paul writes, Because... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Uh, So we start there, right? We we face uh, suffering well when we are confident uh, that we are saved in Christ. Um, Second thing, uh, Paul continues on and he says in verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer... Uh, according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's break this verse down uh, into uh, some smaller bits. Uh, First thing is we need to make sure we are suffering for doing God's will. Or to put it another way, that we're suffering for the right reason. So let those suffer according to God's will. Now what does it mean to suffer according to God's will? What I wanted to mean is this, that for me, it's not going to be God's will to suffer. Right? Like God picks some people for suffering, but I'm certainly not one of those, right? I'm exempted. That's probably not what it means, right? What it means is that um, make sure that when suffering comes, you're doing God's will, right? According to God's will, you're a person who's, who's doing God's will. You're, you're committed to his purpose, and you're suffering for the right reason. To suffer outside of God's will is to suffer for, for your own stupidity. That's basically what he's saying here, right? That He says, look, we can bring suffering on ourselves by making bad choices, by doing foolish things, and by living a life of sin. And when we do that, we bring on ourselves suffering, but that's not suffering according to God's will. That's suffering according to our own stupidity or our own bad choices. Right, so if you drive too fast and you're careless uh, driving and you crash, that's not suffering according to God's will, right? That's suffering because you weren't careful, right? Or if you don't take care of your body, you don't exercise and don't eat well, and you you get you have a heart attack because you're unhealthy, that's not suffering according to God's will, right? That's suffering because of bad choices. Or if you... Uh, you know, drink too much or use drugs or have, a, a, you know, bad habits and you get liver cancer or lung cancer as a result. That's not suffering according to God's will. Right. That's bringing on ourselves suffering by our own bad choices. Right. So suffering uh, according to God's will is, is living a, the kind of life that God calls us to. Walking in holiness, walking in purity making wise choices according to God's will and purpose and plan. Um, and, and the idea here is that suffering is not so traumatic when we have the conviction that we are suffering for a worthy cause or a good purpose. Right? Suffering is tolerable when we suffer for the right reason. Right? Um, and, and we kind of get this in, in, in many areas of life because oftentimes we choose suffering. Right? But we always choose suffering uh, for a good purpose, and you see this a lot in the in the world of sports and athletics. Right? Um, people sometimes do crazy things uh, to prepare for a race or for a game or for a sports competition, or they they run these you know marathons and ultra marathons, crazy things. Right? Um, I, I was just talking recently to somebody who did one of these uh, kind of it's not just a marathon. Now, you can't just run. Now, you've got to do a marathon that's a challenge race. So in addition to running, you have to find other ways to torture yourself along the way, right? These obstacles. And I was talking to somebody who'd done one of these, and they said, yeah, I only cried once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. Right. Well, why would you do that? Why would you choose to put yourself through that kind of pain, right? Well, uh, because because it's worth it, because you have the purpose of winning or or, or conquering the challenge, right? And there's some reward in it. It's like, yeah, it's worth it to go through that pain because the end result is to know I did it. I conquered, right? I won. Uh, I beat the challenge, right? So, so we kind of get how that works in the sports world, right? Um, when the purpose is right, when the reason is good, we'll, we'll suffer a lot, right? And I'm telling you, there's no greater purpose than the gospel of Christ and the glory of God, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation we just saw, right? To to suffer for the sake of bringing the the saving work and purpose of Jesus to a lost world, uh, there's nothing better or more significant or important. Is it worth suffering for a cause like that? Absolutely. Uh, God's glory is to shine throughout the earth. And there's nothing greater than to uh, live our lives for his glory. And if it means suffering, right, so be it, right? And, and oftentimes we, we've seen in the past, we've talked about this, that sometimes we give glory, the greatest glory to God, in the midst of our suffering, right? It's easy when life is going well and we're happy and we're prosperous to say, yeah, praise God. And people say, yeah, sure, you praise God, your life's easy. But when we suffer, when things are hard uh, and we still praise God, that gives him glory right? in a unique and, and significant way. Right. So uh, make sure you're suffering according to God's will. Make sure you're suffering and you're clear about the reason, the purpose. Right? You're doing it for him. Second thing, um, uh, we need to, to place your life in God's care. Right. And he goes on, he says... Uh, as you suffer for God's will, um, entrust your souls to a faithful creator. Entrust your souls to a faithful creator. Uh, the next thing we can do is we can place our lives in God's care. Uh, to entrust, uh, the word has the idea of to put your soul, your whole being, in God's care for safekeeping.
1: It really has the idea of
0: putting your life in his hands. Right? Uh, and this is super important in the midst of Suffering. Uh, and it means that we trust in his care, even in the midst of suffering, that he will bring us through it, and in the end he will save us. Right? He will deliver us. He will care for us each step of the way. And it's a choice that we make. Right? We're not faceless, we're, we're not powerless, sorry, we're not powerless in the face of suffering. We do have choices, Right? Now we may not be able to control all the circumstances. We may not be able to make choices about things that happen to us, but we can always choose our response, right? We can choose to 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 step into panic and fear, of running away or cutting off others who are who are hurting us, uh, of shutting down or just canceling the problem in our head, right? We can try to do those things. Those are choices we can make, or we can choose. To trust in God's care. Choose to trust in God's care. Well, why would we choose to trust in God's care? Uh, Is he really worthy of our trust? Well, he says we we are to entrust uh, our souls to who? To a faithful creator. A faithful creator. Um, Faithful. It means that he is absolutely worthy of our trust. He's faithful. He's not going to let us down. He is not going to drop the ball. He is not going to forget us. Uh, he is not going to be careless about our suffering. But he's going to be very aware of everything that we are going through. And he's going to be faithful to us in the midst of it. Right? And it's interesting, he also casts us in the frame of God as a creator. Now, he could have said a faithful shepherd, a faithful savior, a faithful lord. Um, but he chooses the word creator. And this is kind of an unusual word for Peter. Peter doesn't often talk. In fact, I think this is the only instance where he really speaks about God as creator of the heavens and the earth. Um, and perhaps what Peter has in mind here is God's care, God's gracious care for everything that he's made for all of creation. Right? Um, Jesus says in Matthew that God, uh, his son rises on on the, the the just and the unjust, right? That's God's care as creator. He cares for the world, all of it, right? And he sends his reign on the good and on the evil. Uh, God blesses his world, his creation, and all of it is under his care, and he cares for it well, right? Um, by his grace, right? And if that's true for the world at large, if God lovingly cares for everything He has made, how much more will He care for us who are His children, who are uh, His people, those who Jesus died for? So Paul says in Romans 8.31, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? right? Uh, can we trust our lives into God's care? Absolutely. Absolutely. We can trust into his hands our, our life, that he will uh, walk, walk, walk with us. Uh, and and this, this also brings up another important truth, and that is that uh, not only do we put our, can we put our lives in his hands, but he has promised to constantly be with us. Right? Uh, to care with us up close and personal. So we have this assurance that, that we are never alone. right? And sometimes when, when we suffer, when things are going bad, we it can feel like God has abandoned us. Right? We may think, oh, what have I done wrong that God has rejected me? And that's what the, the psalmist David cried out often. Why have you rejected me? Why have you forgotten me? We have this assurance and promise in Scripture that that. He never leaves us. Even when we walk, as Psalms 23 says, through the valley of the shadow of death, right, He is near us and with us. We never face suffering alone. Right? But He walks with us through every trial and hardship. So Jesus promises in Matthew twenty eight twenty, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Right? We have his, the assurance of His presence. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Uh, And there's something about facing trauma, facing hardship, facing suffering, when you know you're not alone. When you know you're not alone, when you know the God of the universe is with you and walking with you, leading you through it all. Uh, We need that. And and it gives us courage to face suffering that we don't do it by ourselves. Last thing uh, he says. uh, As he says, um, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while or in doing good. Literally it says in doing good. There's some kind of translation Decisions to be made there. Uh, the ESVs translated it while doing good. Some translated it by doing good. Uh, I like the word in, <laughs> right? And it really has this idea that uh, in the midst of suffering, we need to focus on the mission, not the problems. And remember, the mission is God's glory. The mission is the gospel. The mission, he says, sums up here is just doing good. Doing good, uh, Uh, caring for people, loving people, loving God, serving people, seeking to see his kingdom grow and expand around us. Um, And what we see is that uh, this sense of mission or purpose keeps us moving forward rather than getting stuck in our problems and pain. But this is what trips up a lot of people. Uh, Instead of focusing on others, in the midst of suffering and pain, it's super easy to get so focused completely on me. Now, in all fairness, I will say this is, this is easier said than done, in the midst of great suffering, to look outward, right? Every once in a while, I'll get super bad uh, migraine headaches. And I'm telling you, when I have a super bad migraine he- headache, it is hard to not think about anything but myself and my pain, right? It's hard to get past that. Um, and suffering has that effect, Right? Uh, we we want to fix our life. We want it to get over. And so it's very easy to become very self-focused. And it's, it's in times like that, that that we most easily take on this role of victim, right? Oh, man, I am such a victim. I'm suffering all these things. And we can become very self-focused. Um, and it can easily move from just dealing with my pain to... The next step, which is feeling sorry for ourselves, right? Oh, woe is me, right? I'm so, I'm so pathetic. I'm such a victim. I'm suffering here, right? And, and then from there, it's, it's even a shorter step to, and why doesn't everybody else feel sorry for me, right? Why don't people have pity on me? Um, maybe we think, why doesn't God have pity on me? And pretty soon we become so focused on ourselves; that we become trapped in this role of a victim. We become stuck in this role of my own suffering and my own self-pity. Right now, I'm not saying there's not a place for compassion. (laughs) Like certainly, uh, compassion when we're suffering for somebody to come along and have some pity on us, to uh, feel sorry with us. There's great power in that, and certainly we as believers should be looking at those who are suffering and finding ways to come alongside them. Uh, There's this great healing in that, actually. We've got to be careful that we don't don't get stuck in this victim mode, right? Where we uh, just get so focused on our own suffering and our own problems that we forget there's a whole world around us, right? There's something incredibly freeing when even in the midst of suffering we can do good. We can live for others. we can stop thinking only about my problems, and we can love other people and serve and give right? it's interesting they uh, uh, did some research on people who survived plane crashes i 'm um, guessing it's a kind of a small group like i don't know how many people survived plane crashes, but apparently there are some and they studied like people who survived these plane crashes, how they responded. And they found there were basically three kinds of response. The first one were people who just went into full-on panic and hysteria. They just freaked out, right? Just went kind of crazy. And, and in that panic, they, they couldn't really function. Right? They couldn't make good decisions. They couldn't help. Maybe they couldn't even get themselves out of the plane. They were just panic-stricken and paralyzed with anxiety and fear. Then there were another group who just passed out, <laughs> right? And, and these are people who weren't injured, right? So it wasn't like they had head, you know, head trauma and, and were knocked unconscious. These are people who were, who were not injured, but it was so overwhelming they just they just blanked out, they just checked out, right? Also, really hard to get yourself out of the plane and 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 be of any use to yourself or anybody else when you're passed out, right? But then there's a third group who were able to stay calm and focused. And these people, uh, interestingly enough, were the ones who helped others, right? They didn't just get themselves out of the plane, but they actually helped people, right? Is there some connection there, right? Maybe there is, right? Maybe when we focus on others, it gives us a calmness to deal with the stress and anxiety and craziness of life. Uh, at the very least, it keeps us from getting stuck, right? When we have something to fight for, we know what the battle is, we know what the purpose is. Right? It gives us something to fight and focus on rather than our own pain. Um, uh, I don't know if you've experienced this, but maybe there's nothing like getting so lost in helping others that we forget about ourselves and our own pain and problems. Right? Is that possible? Well, maybe, right? Maybe. When we're so other-focused. Regardless, Peter says, uh, and trust yourselves to a faithful creator in doing good. Um, let me close up with just a couple quick thoughts. Um, first of all, does this really work? Like, do I have a money-back guarantee on this, right? Uh, sure, it's in the Bible, but does this really work? Well, interestingly, when you look through Scripture, we don't have time to look through uh, the many examples, but there's many examples of people in Scripture who suffer. If you don't believe it, just read a quick version. Uh, Hebrews 11, right? Lots of people suffer, right? Horrible things. And we see, uh, for example, Joseph, uh, mistreated by his brothers, eventually abused by his brother. They throw him down in a well, sold by his brothers, where he ends up as a slave in Egypt. He ends up in prison. More abuse, more trauma. And yet uh, you see Joseph, through all of this, trusting God, doing the right thing, and caring for other people. And then, and then, of course, he becomes like the second ruler in Egypt and saves all of Israel and all of civilization, actually. Um, good, great example. Uh, but, but let's, let's, let's focus on, on the ultimate example, which is Christ. Right? How did Jesus do when he faced the suffering of the cross? Right? There's no suffering more horrific or terrible than a Roman crucifixion and all that, all that went with it. Right? And, and just think what, what Jesus endured. Right? He was falsely accused by those who hated him. He was betrayed and abandoned by his best friends. He uh, uh, faced incredible injustice, a trial uh, that was just a joke, uh, where he was given no, nothing fair. He was mocked and spit on, abused, ridiculed, beaten multiple times. And some of these beatings were, were the worst. Right. The worst you can imagine. Horrible, right? Um, finally marched up to, uh, to Golgotha where he was laid out, stretched on a, a cross and nailed hands and feet to those planks, right? those, those beams. Uh, excruciating pain. Unimaginable br- br- brutality. A strip naked, put on display in the most shameful and humiliating way possible. So not only enduring the physical pain of it, but just the shame and humiliation of it all, right? Uh, Crucified as just a criminal. It's really hard to imagine uh, any kind of suffering that could be more traumatic or worse, right? But notice how Jesus uh, goes through this whole experience, right? Does he panic and freak out? Does he just shut down and pass out? Now, you see Jesus, like, focused and control and calm through the whole thing, right? I, mean, I don't have time to go through the whole gospel, but I encourage you to, to think through it. But here's just a couple examples, right? Uh, he's committed to the mission from, uh, with a focus on the cross. Like, he marches into the cross. So at the garden, uh, it says he took Peter and James with them, and, they be, and, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch." I'm going a little further. He fell to the ground. And he prayed if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, but Father, if all things are possible for you, remove this cup from me. But then what does he say? Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Lord, may I, may I live according to your purpose and will to the very end. Amen. He was so committed to God's purpose and God's mission. Um, and that restored him to calm, right? He was able to go out from there when the, when the crowds came. And so we see the next scene when they come to arrest him. It says, now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man, seize him. And so Judas came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, get this, right? There's, here's calm in the face of suffering. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Right? Jesus is not panicked. He's not freaked out. He's actually showing compassion and kindness to his enemy who's betraying him. Right? Um, you know what happens next? They come up, they seize him, and Peter, in his zeal, takes out a sword and chops off somebody's ear. Right? Peter is in panic mode. Right? Peter is panicking. And uh, him, first all, well, hundreds of people, he's going to beat them all with his sword, right? Uh, he chops the guy's ear off. And what is Jesus saying, right? right? He's doing good. Jesus is doing good to people in the midst of this. Uh, he says, um, uh, 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 Lord, shall we, uh, and one of the high priests, stuck, I'm sorry, verse 50 of Luke 22, Jesus said, after he cuts off the guy's ear, Peter cuts off the guy's ear, Jesus says, no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. Right? Jesus showing kindness and compassion in the midst of his own horrible suffering. Right? There's the trial. They led him away. Uh, more horrible things. And you see Jesus silent, calm, and control. Right? Focused on giving glory to God and on the mission. Finally, they brought him to the place of the skull in Luke 22. And they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Amazing. Jesus just got nails pierced through his hands and feet. And he says, he's not thinking of himself. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. His heart and his mind is on others. And finally, in the end, after it was all over, and he came to the end, in in Luke 23, Jesus said, calling out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I entrust my soul into your care. And he died, right? He breathed his last. Um, We're not Jesus. (laughs) But it works. Jesus proved it works. Right? You can face the most horrific suffering. Thankfully, we won't have to face what he faced. But we can face any suffering the way he did by his help. But here's the final secret, right? You have to practice, right? If you think it's going to work this way, well, next time I'm in a plane crash and you know the wreckage is burning around me and I'm still conscious and I want to be I'll remember these things. I'll get out my phone and I'll look up, well, you know what Tim say? What is that in the Bible? We're supposed to do something. It doesn't work that way, right? Uh, When when crisis hits, when suffering hits, if if you're not already prepared, you're going to be like Peter. You're going to panic. You're just going to pass out. You're going to check out, right? This is something you need to start practicing daily, right? These disciplines, these attitudes of heart, Right, where we live every day with the purpose of giving glory to God. We live with the purpose of the mission of the gospel. Right? We wake up every day focused on that mission and committed to it. And we say, God, we're committed to that mission no matter what happens. Your glory and the gospel of Christ is what I will live for no matter what. Right? Every day, committing to doing good. To living for other people. To stop thinking about your own worries and your own problems and think about what's going on in people's lives around you and serve them and love them and care for them. There's something incredibly freeing freeing in that. There's something incredibly imprisoning when we get stuck worried about me and my own problems. But it takes practice. Um, Daily, learning what it means to entrust your life to God and put yourself in His care. Right? it 's so easy to just forget this one when things are going well it 's like well i don 't need to no you do need to actually right continually learn the, the habit of, of giving your life into god 's care and trusting him right so that when crisis comes you already you 're already doing this a learning daily to live in his presence and experience him with you right in the midst of a crisis it can feel so much like god 's abandoned you. Right? It can feel so much like he doesn't care. And that's why now is the time to continually be remembering that he is present with you, he loves you, he cares for you, he is always with you, no matter how it feels, right? sinking deeply and holding on to his promise. Um, right? Reflecting daily on the example of Jesus, uh, who faced the worst suffering, right? Uh, By doing these things with calmness and with joy. Uh, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It is possible to suffer uh, with joy, um, suffer with confidence, suffer with courage uh, by God's help. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand.